Chapter 2 Land of Pure Life Chenardwaj, the governor of Kashmir, wanted to broadcast to the entire world that the Nilkanth had appeared in his capital city, not in one of the other frontier towns like Takshashila, Karachapo or Lothal, but in his Srinagar. But the bird courier had arrived almost immediately from Devagiri, the Melohan capital, the abode of the gods, and the emperor's orders were crystal clear. The news of the Nilkant's arrival had to be kept secret until the emperor himself had seen Shiva. Chenardwaj was instructed to send Shiva to Devagiri immediately, along with an escort. Most importantly, Shiva himself was not to be told about the prophecy. The emperor will advise the supposed Nilkanth in an appropriate manner, were the exact words in the message. Chenardwaj had the privilege of informing Shiva about the journey. Shiva, however, was not in the most amenable of moods. He was utterly perplexed by the sudden devotion of every Melohan around him. Since he'd been transferred to the gubernatorial residence where he lived in luxury, only the most important citizens of Srinagar had access to him. My lord, we will be escorting you to Devagri, our capital, said Chenardwaj, as he struggled to bend his enormous muscular frame lower than he ever had before. It is a few weeks' journey from here. I'm not going anywhere until somebody tells me what's happening. What the hell is this damned prophecy of the Nilkanth? Shiva asked angrily. My lord, please have faith in us. You will know the truth soon. The emperor himself will tell you when you reach Devagari. And what about my tribe? They will be given land rights here in Kashmir, my lord. All the resources they need to lead a comfortable life will be provided. Are they being held hostage? Oh no, my lord, said Chenardwaj, visibly disturbed. They are your tribe, my lord. If I had my way, they would live like nobility from this day forward. But our laws cannot be broken, my lord, not even for you. We can only give them what has been promised. In time, my lord, you may decide to change the laws as you feel necessary. Then we could certainly accommodate them anywhere. I beg you, my lord, pleaded Nandi, have faith in us. You can't imagine how important you are to Meluha. We've been waiting a very long time for you. We need your help. Please help me. Please. The memory of another desperate plea from a distraught woman years ago returned to haunt Shiva as he was stunned into silence. Your destiny is much larger than these massive mountains. Shiva's uncle's words echoed in his mind. Nonsense. I don't deserve any destiny. If these people knew my guilt, they'd stop this bullshit instantly. I don't know what to do, Bhadra. Shiva was sitting in the royal gardens on the banks of the Dal Lake. His friend sat at his side, carefully pressing some marijuana into a chillum. As Padra used a lit stick to bring the chillum to life, Shiva said impatiently, That's a cue for you to speak, you fool. No, that's actually a cue for me to hand you the chillum, Shiva. Why won't you counsel me? asked Shiva in anguish. We're still the same friends who never made a move without consulting each other. Bhadra smiled to soften his words. 
No, we're not. You're the chief now. The tribe lives and dies by your decisions, and they must not be corrupted by any other person's influence. We're not like the Pakritis, whose chief has to listen to the loudest mouths on his council. The chief's wisdom is supreme among the Gunas. That's our tradition. Shiva rolled his eyes in exasperation. Some traditions are meant to be broken. Bhadra stubbornly remained silent. Shiva grabbed the chillum from him and took a deep drag, letting the marijuana permeate his body. I've only heard one thing about this prophecy of the Nilkant, said Bhadra. Apparently the Meluhans are in deep trouble, and only the Nilkant can save them. But I can't see any trouble here. Everything looks perfect. If they want to see real trouble, we should take them to our land. Bhadra laughed a little uneasily. But what is it about the blue throat that makes them believe you can save them? Damned if I know. They're so much more advanced than us, and yet they worship me like I'm some god, just because of this blue throat. I think their medicines are magical, though. Have you noticed that the hump on my back is a little smaller than it was? So it is. Their doctors are seriously gifted. You know their doctors are called Brahmins. Like Ayurvati? asked Shiva, passing the chillum back to Bhadra. Yes, but the Brahmins don't just cure people. They're also teachers, lawyers, priests, basically any intellectual profession. Talented people, Shiva sniffed. That's not all, said Bhadra, pausing for a long draw on the pipe. They have a concept of specialization that influences their entire society. So, in addition to the Brahmins, they have a group called Kshatriyas, who are the warriors and rulers. Even women can be Kshatriyas. Really? They allow women into their army? Well, apparently, there aren't too many female Kshatriyas, but yes, they're allowed into the army. No wonder they're in trouble. <laughs> the friends laughed loudly at the Melahan's strange ways. Padra took another puff before continuing. And then they have the Vaishyas who are craftsmen, traders and business people, and finally, the Shudras, who are the farmers and workers. And one caste can't do another caste's job. Hang on, said Shiva. That means that since you're a warrior, you wouldn't be allowed to trade at the marketplace? Yes. Bloody stupid rule. How would you get me my marijuana? After all, that's the only thing you're useful for. Shiva leaned back to avoid Bhadra's playful blow. All right, all right, take it easy, he said laughing. Stretching out, he grabbed the chillum from Bhadra and took another deep drag. We're talking about everything except what we should be talking about. Shiva became solemn again. But seriously, strange as they are, what should I do? What are you thinking of doing? Shiva looked as if he were contemplating the roses in the far corner of the garden. I don't want to run away again. What? asked Padra, not hearing Shiva's tormented whisper clearly. I said, repeated Shiva loudly, I can't bear the guilt of running away again. That wasn't your fault, 
Yes, it was. Padra fell silent. There was nothing more to be said. Covering his eyes, Shiva sighed. Yes, it was. Padra put one hand on his friend's shoulder, grasping it gently, waiting for the terrible moment to pass. Shiva turned his head to look at Padra. I'm asking for advice, my friend. If they need my help, I can't refuse. But how can I leave our tribe here all by themselves? What should I do? Padra continued to hold Shiva's shoulder. He breathed deeply. He could think of an answer. It might even be the correct answer. For Shiva, his friend. But was it the correct answer for Shiva, his chief? At last he said, You have to find that wisdom for yourself, Shiva. That's the tradition. Oh, the hell with you! And the hell with tradition! Shiva threw the chillum back at Padra and stormed away. A few days later, a minor caravan consisting of Shiva, Nandi and three soldiers was scheduled to leave Srinagar. The small size of the party would ensure that they moved quickly through the realm and reached Devagiri as soon as possible. Governor Chenadraj was anxious for Shiva to be recognized quickly by the Empire as the true Nilkanth. He wanted to go down in history as the governor who had found the Lord. Shiva had been made presentable for the Emperor. His hair had been oiled and smoothed, and his fair face had been scrubbed clean with special Ayurvedic herbs to remove years' worth of dead skin and ingrained dirt. Expensive clothes and attractive earrings, necklaces and other jewellery adorned his muscular frame. A cravat had been fabricated out of cotton to cover his glowing blue throat. It had been cleverly embroidered with beads to make it look like the traditional necklaces that the Meluan men wore on religious pilgrimages. The cravat felt warm against his still cold throat. I'll be back soon, said Shiva, as he hugged Bhadra's mother. Amazingly, the old woman's limp was a little less pronounced than before. Their medicines are truly magical. As Bhadra looked at him rather morosely, Shiva whispered, Take care of the tribe. You're in charge until I return. Padra stepped back, startled. Shiva, you don't have to do that just because I'm your friend. I do have to do it, you fool. And the reason I have to do it is because you're more capable than me. Padra stepped up quickly and embraced Shiva, lest his friend notice the tears in his eyes. No, Shiva, I'm not. Not even in my dreams. Shut up and listen to me carefully, said Shiva, as Bhadra smiled sadly. I don't think the Gunas are in any danger out here, at least not as much as we were at Mount Kailash. But even so, if you feel you need help, ask Ayurvati. I saw her in action when the tribe was ill. She showed tremendous commitment to save us all. She's worth trusting. Bhadra nodded, hugged Shiva again and left the room. Ayurvati knocked politely on the door. May I come in, my lord? This was the first time she had visited him since that fateful moment seven days back. It felt like a lifetime ago to her. 
Though she appeared to be her usual confident self again, there was a slightly different look about her. She had the appearance of someone who had been touched by the divine. Come in, Ayurvati, and please, none of this lord business. I'm still the same uncouth immigrant you met a few days ago. I'm sorry about that comment, my lord. It was wrong of me to say it, and I'm willing to accept any punishment you may deem fit. What's wrong with you? Why should I punish you for speaking the truth? Why should this weird blue throat change anything? You'll learn the reason soon, my lord, whispered Ayurvati with her head bowed. We've waited centuries for you. Centuries? In the name of the holy lake, why? What can I do that none of you smart people can? The emperor will tell you, my lord. But after everything I've heard from your tribe, if there's one person worthy of being the Nilkanth, it's you. Speaking of my tribe, I've told them that if they need any help, they should call on you. I hope that's all right. It would be my honor to provide any assistance they might require, my lord. Saying this, she bent down to touch Shiva's feet in the traditional Indian manner of showing respect. Shiva had resigned himself to accepting this gesture from most Melohans, but he immediately stepped back as Ayurvati bent down. What the hell are you doing? he asked, horrified. You're a doctor, a giver of life. Please don't embarrass me by touching my feet. Ayurvati looked up at Shiva, her eyes shining with admiration and devotion. This was certainly a man worthy of being the Nilkanth. Nandi entered Shiva's room carrying a saffron cloth with the word Ram stamped across every inch of it. He asked Shiva to wrap it around his shoulders. As Shiva complied, Nandi muttered a short prayer for a safe journey to Devagiri. Then he announced, Our horses are waiting outside, my lord. We can leave whenever you're ready. Nandi, said an exasperated Shiva, How many times must I tell you? My name is Shiva. I'm your friend, not your lord. Oh no, my lord, gasped Nandi. You're the Nilkanth. You are the lord. How can I speak your name? Shiva rolled his eyes and turned towards the door. I give up. Can we leave now? Of course, my lord. They stepped outside to find three mounted soldiers waiting patiently. Tethered close to them were three more horses, one each for Shiva and Nandi, the third for carrying their supplies. The well-organized Malahan Empire had rest houses and stores spread along all major travel routes. Carrying provisions for just one day, a traveler with Melohan coin could comfortably keep buying fresh food along the way to supply a journey of months. Nandi's horse had been tethered next to a small platform, with steps leading up to it on the side furthest from the horse, a convenient aid for obese riders who found mounting a horse a cumbersome business. Shiva looked at Nandi's enormous form, then at his unfortunate horse, and then back at Nandi. Aren't there any laws in Meluha against cruelty to animals? Asked Shiva with the most sincere of expressions. Oh yes, my lord, very strict laws. In Meluha, all life is precious. In fact, there are strict guidelines as to when and how animals can be slaughtered and... 
Suddenly, Nandi stopped speaking as Shiva's joke finally breached his slow wit. They both burst out laughing as Shiva slapped Nandi hard on the back. Shiva's entourage followed the course of the Jhelum, which had resumed its thunderous roar as it crashed down the lower Himalayas. When it reached the magnificent fertile plains, the turbulent river calmed once again and flowed smoothly on, smoothly enough for the group to board one of the many public transport barges and sail quickly down to the town of Brihaspaturam. From there, they travelled east along a well-laid and clearly marked road through Punjab, the heart of the Malahan Empire's northern reaches. Punjab literally means the land of the five rivers, the land of the Indus, Jhelum, Chenab, Ravi and Bias. After convoluted journeys across the rich plains of Punjab, the four eastern rivers joined the Grand Indus, which flowed furthest to the west. The Indus itself eventually found comfort and succour in the enormous, all-embracing ocean. The mystery of the ocean's final destination, though, was yet to be unravelled. Standard Meluhan protocol required the three accompanying soldiers to ride at a polite distance behind Shiva and Nandi, far enough away not to overhear any conversation, but close enough to move in quickly at the first sign of trouble. What's Ram? inquired Shiva, as he looked down at the words stamped all over his saffron cloth. Lord Ram was the emperor who established our way of life, my lord, replied Nandi. He lived around twelve hundred years ago, and he created our systems, our rules, our ideologies, everything. His reign is known simply as Ram Rajya, or the rule of Ram. The Ram Rajya is considered to be the gold standard for how an empire ought to be administered in order to create a perfect life for all its citizens. Meluha is still run according to his principles. Jai Sri Ram. He must have been quite a man, for he truly created a paradise right here on earth. Shiva was not just being polite when he said this. Meluha was a land of abundance, of almost ethereal perfection, an empire ruled by clearly codified and just laws to which every Melohan was subordinated, including the emperor. The country supported a population of nearly eight million, which, without exception, looked to be well-fed, healthy and wealthy. The average intellect was exceptionally high. There were a somewhat serious people, Shiva reflected, but unfailingly polite and civil. It appeared to be a flawless society, in which everyone knew his role and played it perfectly. They were dedicated, nay obsessive, when it came to their duties. The simple truth hit Shiva. If the entire society carried out its duties, Nobody would need to fight for their individual rights, since everybody's rights would be automatically taken care of by someone else's duties. Lord Ram was indeed a genius. Shiva quietly repeated Nandi's cry. Jai Sri Ram. Glory to Lord Ram. Leaving their tired mounts behind at a government-run crossing house, they took a boat over the river Ravi, close to the city of Hariupa. Shiva lingered there a while, admiring the city, his soldiers waiting just beyond his shadow on fresh horses from the crossing house on the other side of the Ravi. Hariupa 
was a much larger city than Srinagar and looked grand from the outside. Next to Hariyapur, a new platform was being erected to accommodate the city's expanding population. I'd love to know how they raise these magnificent platforms, thought Shiva, making a mental note to visit the construction site on his return journey. Tempted as he was to explore the city, it would only delay their journey to Devagiri. A short way off, Jatta, the captain of the crossing house, was talking to Nandi as he prepared to climb the platform to mount his fresh horse. Avoid the road via Jathratkiri, advised Jatta. There was a terrorist attack there last night. All the Brahmins were killed and the village temple was destroyed. As usual, the terrorists escaped before any backup soldiers arrived. When in Lord Agni's name will we fight back? snarled Nandi angrily. We should attack their country. I swear, by Lord Indra, if I ever find one of these Chandravanshi terrorists, I'll cut his body into minute pieces and feed it to the dogs, growled Jatta, fists clenched tight. Jatta, we are followers of the Suryavanshis. We mustn't even think of committing such barbaric acts, said Nandi, scandalized that Jatta could think of defiling the dead in this hideous manner, even if the dead were terrorists. Do the terrorists follow the rules of war when they attack us? Jatta replied angrily. Don't they kill unarmed men? That doesn't mean we can act the same way, Captain. We're Meluhans, said Nandi firmly. Jatta didn't counter Nandi's statement. He was distracted by Shiva, who was still sitting on his horse at a distance, studying the city. Is he with you? Jatta asked. Yes. He isn't wearing a caste amulet? Is he a new immigrant? Yes, replied Nandi uneasily, growing uncomfortable answering questions about Shiva. And you're going to Devagiri? asked Jatta, as he looked more curiously towards Shiva's throat. I've heard some rumours coming from Srinagar. Thank you for your help, Captain Jatta, Nandi interrupted firmly, and before the captain could act on his suspicions, Nandi quickly climbed the platform, mounted his horse, and rode towards Shiva. We should leave now, my lord. Shiva wasn't listening. Once again, he was perplexed as he saw the proud Captain Jatta fall to his knees. Jatta was looking directly at Shiva, his hands folded in a respectful namaste, and he appeared to be mumbling something very quickly. Shiva couldn't be sure from that distance, but it looked as if the captain was crying. He whispered, Why? We should go, my lord, repeated Nandi a little louder. Shiva turned to him, still confused, but then he nodded and kicked his horse into motion. As they travelled the straight and rather boring road, Shiva took the opportunity to study Nandi's jewellery, which he had begun to think might be more than merely ornamental. He wore two amulets on his thick right arm. The first was engraved with some symbolic lines, the meaning of which Shiva could not fathom. The second was etched with the likeness of an animal probably a bull. Two pendants dangled from one of his gold chains. One was shaped like a perfectly circular sun with rays streaming outwards. The other was a brown elliptical seed-like object with small serrations all over it. I'm curious about the significance of your jewellery. Or is that another state secret? teased Shiva. Of course not, my lord, replied Nandi earnestly. He pointed at the first amulet, 
which had been tied around his massive arm with a silky gold thread. This amulet represents my caste. The lines drawn on it symbolize the shoulders of the Parmatma, the Almighty. This indicates that I am a Kshatriya. And I am sure there are other clearly coded guidelines for representing the other castes as well. Right you are, my lord. You are exceptionally intelligent. No, I am not. You people are just exceptionally predictable. Nandi smiled a little ruefully as Shiva continued. So, what are the symbols for the Brahmins, Vaishyas and Shudras? Lines drawn to represent the head of the Paramatma indicate that the wearer is a Brahmin, while the Vaishya symbol denotes the thighs of the Paramatma. An amulet engraved with the feet of the Paramatma would make the wearer a Shudra. Interesting, said Shiva with a slight frown. I imagine most Shudras are not too happy with their symbol. Shiva's comment surprised Nandi. Why would a Shudra have a problem with this ancient symbolic order? But he kept his thoughts to himself, not wishing to disagree with his lord. And the other amulet? asked Shiva. This one depicts my chosen tribe. Every Meluhan, guided by their parents' advice, applies for a chosen tribe when they turn twenty-five years old. Brahmins choose from birds and Kshatriyas from animals. Flowers are allocated to Vaishyas and fishes to Shudras. The allocation board oversees a rigorous examination process. You must qualify for a chosen tribe that represents both your ambitions and skills. Choose a tribe that's too mighty and you'll embarrass yourself if your achievements don't measure up to the standards of that tribe. Choose a tribe too lowly and you'll not be doing justice to your own talents. As you can see, my chosen tribe is represented by a bull. Forgive me if this is an impolite question, but what does a bull mean in the hierarchy of Kshatriya chosen tribes? Well, it's not as high as a lion, tiger or elephant, but it's not a rat or a pig either. For my money, a bull can beat any lion or elephant, Shiva smiled. And what about the pendants on your chain? The brown seed is a representation of the last Mahadev, Lord Rudra. It symbolizes the protection and regeneration of life. Even divine weapons cannot destroy the life it protects. And the sun? The sun shows that I am a follower of the Suryavanshi kings, the kings who are the descendants of the sun. What? The sun came down and some queen? teased an incredulous shiver. Of course not, my lord. Nandi smiled, appreciating Shiva's humor. All it means is that we follow the solar calendar, so you could say instead that we're the followers of the path of the sun. In practical terms, it denotes that we're strong and steadfast. We honor our word and keep our promises, even at the cost of our lives. We never break the law. We deal honorably, even with those who are dishonorable. Like the sun, we never take from anyone, but always give to others. We sear our duties into our consciousness so that we may never forget them. Being a Suryavanshi means that we must always strive to be honest, brave, and above all, loyal to the truth. A tall order. I assume Lord Ram was a Suryavanshi king? Yes, of course, replied Nandi his chest puffed up with pride. 
He was the Suryavanshi king. Jai Sri Ram! Jai Sri Ram, echoed Shiva. Nandi and Shiva crossed the river Bias by boat, followed by their three soldiers, who waited to follow the next craft. The Bias was the last river before the long straight road to Devagiri. Unseasonal rain the previous night had made the crossing house captain consider cancelling the day's sailings, but calm weather from first light had persuaded him to keep the service operational. Shiva and Nandi shared the boat with two other passengers, in addition to the boatmen who rowed them across. They were a short distance from the opposite bank when a sudden storm blew up, bringing torrential rain and ferocious winds. The boatmen made a valiant effort to row the remaining distance to the shore, but the boat tossed violently as it surrendered to the elements. Nandi leaned over to tell Shiva to stay low for safety, but he didn't do it gently enough. His considerable weight caused the boat to list dangerously, and he fell overboard. The boatmen struggled with the oars to steady the vessel and save the other passengers from the same fate. Meanwhile, the other two passengers exchanged uneasy glances, knowing that they should jump overboard and try to save Nandi, but his massive build made them hesitate. They knew that if they tried to save him, they would most likely drown. Shiva felt no such hesitation as he quickly tossed aside his angvastram, pulled off his shoes and dived into the turbulent river. Powerful strokes quickly brought him to the rapidly drowning Nandi. He had to use all his considerable strength to pull Nandi to the surface, for he weighed significantly more than any normal man, and Shiva was thankful for the extra vitality he'd been enjoying ever since the first night at the Srinagar immigration camp. He positioned himself behind Nandi and wrapped one arm around his chest, then used his other arm to propel them both to the bank. Nandi's weight made it exhausting work, but finally he was able to tow the Meluhan captain to the shore to meet the emergency staff now running towards them from the crossing house. They dragged Nandi's limp body onto the bank, but he was unconscious. The emergency staff then began a strange procedure. One of them started pressing Nandi's chest in a quick rhythmic motion, counting as he did so. At the count of five, he stopped, and another man covered Nandi's lips with his own and exhaled hard into his mouth. Then they repeated the procedure all over again. Shiva didn't understand what was going on, but he trusted the wisdom of the Melohan medical personnel. After several anxious moments, Nandi suddenly coughed up a considerable amount of water and returned to consciousness with a start. At first, he was disorientated, but quickly regained his wits, and turned abruptly towards Shiva, screeching, My lord, why did you jump in after me? Your life is too precious. You must never risk it for me. Shiva, surprised, supported Nandi's back, and whispered calmly, You need to relax, my friend. Agreeing with Shiva, the medical staff quickly placed Nandi on a stretcher to carry him into the rest quarters attached to the crossing house. Now that the immediate excitement was over, the other boat passengers were looking at Shiva with increasing curiosity. They knew that the fat man was a relatively senior Suryavanshi soldier, judging by his amulets. Yet he called this fair, caste-unmarked man his lord. Strange. But the important thing was that the soldier was safe and they soon dispersed after Shiva followed the medical staff into the rest quarters.